0: Hi, it's Monday night, it's a little early, but I have a lot of college tomorrow, and anyway, I'm a, I'm a Ryan because uh, I asked Ari Abim whose yard set is it, and he mentioned, among others, the run, and that's the one that can zero in, um, with the, uh that means this week, the ninth of Shabbat, is apparently the yard set of the round of uh, Gerona, for those who know what I'm talking about, uh, or if you're from Yeshiva, the run in the back of the Gomorrah, as <laughs> they call it. Uh, who's one of the uh, later Rishonim, a very, very interesting person, even though we know very little about him. How can somebody be interested if you don't know anything about him? Uh, Sit back and listen. Uh, Here we're dealing with somebody who was one of the great Sephardic rabbis of the 14th century, 1300s, which is a century hardly anybody knows anything about. Uh, But it's very fascinating. And here you can't use the word Sephard. Sfarad, because as I mentioned on other occasions, um, Spain in the Middle Ages was divided into separate kingdoms. First, we had the Arab stuff, and then the Arabs were personally, by the 1200s, the Arabs were busted and kicked out of 95% of Spain. So, you had these big Christian kingdoms. Now, listen closely the Iker Torah, as far as we know in the Yeshiva world, was in Aragon, in one very specific part of Spain. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I guess you'd say the north-east? Yeah, the northeastern part of Spain, if that means anything to you. There used to be two big kingdoms. There were a few more, but the two main kingdoms, the center of Spain was called Castile, and that's the Spanish that is spoken today. And to the right of that, along the Mediterranean, was another kingdom called Aragon, or what they call today Catalonia. And the truth of the matter is they don't speak Spanish, they speak their own version of it, a very different dialect, Catalan. And... What's interesting is when we think of the great Sephardic Rishonim, we're actually thinking of people who lived in Aragon. Uh, offhand, I think all the regular names are people from Aragon. I'll give you an example. Uh, who are the biggies when you talk about the Rishonim of Christian Spain? You've got your Benar you've got Ramban, then the Rajba, the Ritva, the Ran, we talk about today, the Rivash, Tashbites, all those people Uh, the raw, all those people lived in Aragon. So it's sort of like saying that um, the Icar Mokum Torah in the United States is in the the northeast part. It's kind of true. That's not to say there's no learning going in the Midwest, of course there is, and in other places in the country, west coast. But the main place with the big yeshiva, the classic stuff, is in the northeast. The people come to learn in the northeast, by and large. Uh, I'm not saying it's the only one, but, you know, it's true. All the normally big yeshivas, you know, Lakewood, you Ne'er Israel, Mir, uh, 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 Khyberlin, all the, Philly, you know, all this, Muncie, you know, all those things are kind of in a fairly concentrated area. Although, there's plenty of learning outside of that. Now, same thing in Spain. By and large, as best that I can think, if I'm sitting over here, uh, <laughs> by myself in this room, All the big Bishonians that you talk about who were Spartan in Spain are actually Aragonese in one very specific uh, place. And they didn't speak Spanish, they spoke Catalan. And uh, their language was this uh, dialect that's, uh, you know, and mainly concentrated in the Barcelona area. Uh, There are two very important centers of Judaism. There were plenty of towns, plenty. But the two Ica places that we know all the biggies from that I think of offhand would be Barcelona on the one hand, and Girona on the other. They're about 60 miles apart. Uh, Girona's about 60 miles north of Barcelona, something like that. And these are two cities on the Mediterranean. And uh, pff, I can't say that you all to, you know, would think all, all of a sudden is the Icarimachum Torah. Well, baby, once upon a time, these two places were, these are the two big centers of learning, especially in Spain. From there, they trained rabbis and went out and served in other communities all over the place. So if the person we're talking about today, the Ron in the back of the Gemara, Nissen Ben Rubin of Girona, well, he's not from Girona, that's just a family name. He's a guy who lived all his life in Barcelona. That's just interesting. Just so like someone who lived all his life in New York, all some of his old careers in, in Lakewood, her whole career in B'nai B'rach, something like that. So the Ron is a person from Barcelona who lived from 13, 13, 13 15, I guess, to 1375. All this stuff is a matter of scholarly arguments, but I believe I'm right, 1375. So he didn't live so long, he'd be 60, 61 years old. He lived all of his life in Barcelona, and uh, that means that this port city once upon a time was hopping and jumping in terms of Judaism, Jewish culture, Torah culture, high-level Talmudic scholarship, and people from all over the world in the 1200s and the 1300s, I mean this, people from all over the world went to learn yeshivas in Barcelona and Corona. That's just interesting. Like, the Rajpo was the big guy in the 1200s. We know hundreds and hundreds of students went from all over North, Southeast, uh, Europe, Africa, and places like that to Barcelona. So it just must have been interesting. I've never been in Barcelona. I did a Spain trip once, I guess you'd say of Castile. We did uh, Madrid, and then Toledo, and then, what was it again, Cordoba, and Malaga, and Granada, and Gibraltar, all that stuff. All of which are very heavy in Jewish history, we did not do Aragon, we did not do Barcelona and Girona and Valencia and all that. Now these names may not mean much to the person listening over here, get a map and look it up, don't be a dummy. And uh, these are distinct regions of Spain and uh, the Yiddish guy uh, had distinctive qualities uh, in these different places. The big people that I would say before I depart the subject, the Rush was a big in Castile in, in Toledo and his children after him. But the Rush got that job because the rush was Ashkenaz and the Rajba, who was from Aragon, from Barcelona, got him the job. That's a famous uh, story. When the rush showed up as, as a, uh, the rush, when he showed up as a refugee in Spain, running away from Ashkenaz from persecutions, the Rajba was the rabbi in Barcelona. And he had the kind of pull, he says, I'll get you a stellar somewhere in Aragon. So that's not a typical case of a scholar emerging from Aragon. I mean, from uh, a job in Castile. It's not just a case of a scholar emerging from Castile. So these distinctions are kind of uh, important and interesting, and it shows you what life must have been like once upon a time in terms of the concentration of scholarship. Now, this person, Durant, hold on one second. I'm sorry about that. Durant got famous because of what he wrote. So, from the old class of Barcelona. Durant is not necessarily the way you imagine. Uh, For example, Durant went to college, I don't know how, what, uh, what the exact circumstances are, you'll be surprised to hear. I was surprised to learn from, uh, what do you call it? Professor hmm, Harvey's book, Warren Hardy, where he's the, the expert on uh, Aragon, and especially Kaz uh, de Kreskes, that in the, I don't know why this is, but in the big yeshiva that was set up in Barcelona, uh, and, uh, but around Bonn even, you know, the students at on Bonn, they had English and Hebrew. In other words, they, they, it's amazing. They they start they learn Gemara obviously and all that, and also a class in philosophy. Now they're anti-philosophy. They're anti-Maimonidean. You understand? So I guess the only thing you could say is they, uh, how and why they had it. Uh, I'm not. I do not know. I can have only two conjectures. One is they wanted damala hashiv, and that is true because the Ron and the whole chevrachas Kreskes and the others were very much into trying up philosophy, you might say, but in order to do, they have to be philosophically trained. The other alternative that presents itself, which is totally possible, is the following. Why would a yeshiva guy in the twelve and 1300s in Barcelona study philosophy? Uh, same reason they would do it, <laughs> have college courses in, uh, in a yeshiva today, like in Baltimore. Guy wants to go for pre-med. Uh, Duran. Was uh, a great Tamil Chacham. He uh, learned the local yeshivas. Uh, he didn't learn from the Raj. The Raj was, uh, the the was born in 1315. The Raj died around 1310. But uh, the Raj, apparently, if I remember correctly, he learned from his own father, who must have been a big Tamil Chacham. And from Rabbeinu Peretz, who was an Ashkenazi, a French rabbi who moved to, uh, to uh, Barcelona, a famous uh, scholar in his day. And the yeshiva must have been full, the, the, the top people in what we would call the yeshiva circles in in barcelona must have been some heavy hitters in terms of the haman and Tom. I mean, this is the circle in of which he arose and obviously became a big deal you know the duran became a big chief scholar as we all know and uh... on the other hand he never wanted to be a rabbi and he never in his life was a rabbi here we deal with something very interesting about spain particularly in aragon the bala were terrible and the richy-riches were disgusting. And anybody who's a, a, a communal rabbi or on a salary, they'll torture you. You understand? In other words, the they, rich and powerful in Barcelona, for example, uh, and the king and the royal court was there in this great port. Besides, that's a combination of the royal government and the port. And all this, and you have Jews connected with the big shot gaim, the princes and the kings and all that was terrible for rabbis, or could be, because... A guy would not hesitate to use his uh, power to get the rabbi killed or imprisoned or kicked out or, you know, mal-shinim, as we would say today. Uh, so the Richie Riches in Aragon divided into, I would say, uh, 20% and 80%. 20% of the Richie Riches were actually B'nai Torah. Uh, they came from long, old, distinguished families. The rajba was from that kind of family. The Ron may have been, it's not clear. And I believe the Rambam was that from that type of background. And they made money, but they also kept up the scholarly tradition. And so to use modern terminology, the guy may be a millionaire, but he also gives a daffyomi. You know, like there, we have plenty of people like that in America, don't we? People were are successful, but they also give a daffyomi. And I mean, a good one, too. So you had that 20%. the 80% of the richie-richie were like these new guys you see in different cities now, coming up, making money in real estate and all that. And um, if they came from a Shiva background then they have some respect. If they don't, watch out. Because then they think they own the world. And uh, you had this terrible problem in Spain. So anybody who was a hush of a rov in Aragon, including the Ramban and the Rajbah, and uh, what do you call it, the, the Iran, and the Chazekreskas, and people like that, uh, didn't want to be a rov. Didn't want to be an al in the classical sense. Isn't that funny? I make my own money the way I make my own money, either through business or through a uh, profession like medicine or something like that. And I'll give, like I say, to Dafiomi, or in this case, not the Dafyomi, nothing superficial. Heavy duty Shiurim. Heavy duty, these are rich on him. Heavy duty Shiurim. On my time and in my place, and nobody in town can tell me what to do. And nobody in town can walk all over and give me instructions. I can say what I want to say uh, within the bounds of reason. And Durama uh, is exactly like that. Uh, we know now from modern research in the 20th century especially from recent decades uh in the royal archives of aragon which have been a fair number have been preserved there have been a nissum of uh of uh, barcelona his name is this in garona but that's just a family name it's like do you know anybody named berlin that's their last name i know people like that do you know anybody the last name is london i know people with the last name is london that doesn't mean they're from london you see <laughs> you know anybody named frankfurter you know anybody named wiener i know such names doesn't mean they're from that town Maybe some way back they were, but that doesn't mean the realm was from Garona. As I said before, as far as we know, he spent his whole life in Barcelona, and uh, he never wanted to be a rabbi, uh, in the sense of being a rub of a Cahila or anything like that. Listen to this. He, uh, he, he was an M.D.? That's right, the realm was an M.D.? We have records that the king of uh, Aragon, who was a famous guy in his time, Peter the fourth, Pedro IV, Pedro IV, Perry IV who's a well-known medieval monarch, uh, has letters, where the, you see the Ron was on the medical staff, meaning he was a well-known M.D., and from time to time he was called to the court uh, by the king to attend to the king, or to the queen, or to the infante, the, the, the crown prince, and all that kind of stuff, along with other doctors. So, I mean, he was a doctor-doctor, he was a real M.D., which is kind of funny, because you never see a mention, at least I'm, as far as I'm aware, you never see any mention of it whatsoever, in his writings, which is goof of the vart. He came from the anti-my, uh, that's not the right word, anti-my mind, but from the right wing, shall we say. That's a better way of putting it. From the right wing of the philosophical, anti-philosophical debate. And therefore, he's one of these guys, he has a degree, but he doesn't show what he doesn't want to talk about when he's in the Basis of he's a different person. That's why I say, it's just an interesting character, you understand, interesting type. And so here's someone who spent his whole life, like I say, he... Lived only to only be sixty, sixty-one, And his main years were his 30s, 40s, and 50s. And uh, he was a big macher. What do I mean when you say a big macher? Clearly he had a yeshiva. Or maybe he gave shiur in the yeshiva. I don't know if it was his yeshiva. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We don't know. We don't have the records. But there was obviously, among other yeshivas, a very important one. And uh, that's where his rabbeim had been. And that's where he spent his career, meaning part-time as a doctor, part-time giving, you know, giving uh, these uh, very important shiurim, and writing, 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 writing. Uh, Duran made his his reputation by his writing, let's face it. Nobody knows anything about Duran, but we sure know Duran, meaning what he left over. And uh, that, to me, is just a very interesting kind of uh, of uh, philosophy, you know, a type of a, a way of life. And so... Here you have somebody who spent, as I said before, his career in the 13, middle 1300s in Barcelona. To be perfectly honest, all this sort of stuff when you read about it has a very tragic quality. Uh, it's a little bit like discussing the politics and stuff going on in Europe in the 1920s and 1930s, which always has a very tragic quality, because you and I know, a few years later, Hitler killed everybody. So if you tell me this Hasidic rabbi was fighting that Hasidic rabbi in Hungary or Poland or Romania, one of those places in the 30s, I get it, but at the end it's very sad, because a few years later, came the Germans and killed everybody. So in the case of Spain, 1391, uh, that was the year of the outbreak of the gigantic wave of pogroms, which uh, swept through uh, Castile and Aragon, and most of the Jews in Spain were either killed or forced to convert, a gigantic number. The Ron's son, I'll talk about in a minute if I remember, said 140,000 uh, Jews uh, converted. Uh, I don't know if that number is true, but that's a crazy number. Uh, it was a terrible time. It's called El Kano, kufnun Nunalov, which means uh, year 1391. And so you see all these people having this issue and that issue in the time, lifetime of the Ron, and then you know a few years later, a decade or two later, the whole thing is a brachal of Atol. Because I can tell you right now, in 1391, the entire community of Barcelona was either killed out of force to convert, not a single one was left. So when they're fighting who should get Shlishi, and who should be Rosh shiva? who should sit in Mizra'alant, within a few years there was no Shlishi, there was no Shul, there was no Mizra'alant, there was no Yeshiva. You see what I'm saying? That's why I say it has a tragic uh, quality to it. Nevertheless, each person's biography has an integrity of its own, and nobody knew this was going to happen. And in the case of Iran, you see somebody who, although he had no official position, nevertheless, was uh, recognized by his scholarship, even though he's a doctor, by his scholarship as a gigantic Talmud Chochem and a posseg, and a posseg. And uh, Duran, they say, I think the Chidot says he wrote 1,000 shuvahs, which means that he got um, letters from all over the world uh, from Israel. Believe it or not, he has a a child from sfas In the 14th century, uh, that means his name was uh, famous as a posseg. Like Vad Yosef, something like that. And uh, that's amazing, because the guy had no, no official position. So, it me, mean, the word got out there that there's a guy in Barcelona who's not, like I said, just like the Rajput, who doesn't have, he's not a Rov in the sense of, you know, Av Basin. Uh, maybe he's a dying on cases, but, you know, he had no official uh, job, as, as far as I'm aware. And uh, he wasn't a Magid, and he wasn't a, you know any kind of official position. And yet people knew. He knows. He knows. And therefore, everybody's sending them shallows. Now, most of them were destroyed in the pogroms of 1391. Classically, 75 or 80 survived. Recently, they found a few more. They published, there's a professor, Feldman. He made himself the expert, the academic expert on the rod. You know, that's what he devoted a lot of attention to. I don't know him, but, you know, he obviously was Mr. Ron, if you ever look up his writings. And he um, and did a lot of good work. And, you know, he found a few extra, I think, 90, 95. But uh, not a whole lot. Uh, from these two, uh, I remember offhand, just off the top of my head, uh, which is all I ever do in this. Deron had a Shyla about a guy who, uh, they forced this girl, a poor orphan girl, to accept the marriage from this uh, real chalaria, And he got the Christian knight, the nobleman, to you know, twist literally, literally twist the girl's arm and force it open so she would accept the ring or something like that. And he had another case of a judge in Nîmes. I don't know why I remember this. In Nîmes, in southern France, where the guy, the dying in potskin against the guy, and the guy was out to kill him. The time, was afraid to leave his house. Uh, you know, this was life in those days. It, it was crazy, you know. Now, um, so you have somebody, like I said before, who just goes strictly by reputation. You know, that he's a Even though he had no position. I'm going to tell you something else. We have records from the king where a, a fair number of them, too. I think Professor Feldman found them, where the king says, I have some hard case dealing with these two Jews or something like that, uh, Jews involved, and uh, maybe they're trying to trick me, the you be down, something like that, whatever he said, and uh, I'm sending the case to you, uh, Magister Nassim, which is Rabbi Nissim uh, Duran, uh, Nissim Ben Rubin, uh, because you were an, you're, you're reputed to be an expert in the Jewish law. So now it was even the government knew about him, and the government didn't turn to whoever was the official rabbi in Barcelona, because that guy was just a salaried employee, you know, or didn't turn to somebody who's a, a macher in the community, because that person's not a big... The Ron is known by everybody in Barcelona to be he knows. You see what I'm saying? That's, that's what I mean. That's what you call a guttle. So, if you want a little bit of example, remember when Moshe Feinstein was alive? I remember the f- federal government or somebody called him up about one something or other, some issue. And, I mean, it's in the biography... And uh, Moshe Feinstein had no official position. You know, he was a rabbi of a yeshiva, not a very big yeshiva in the Lower East Side. Uh, big deal. Uh, couldn't speak English. Yet, the word got around, and when the government wanted to know, or the mayor of New York wants to know, they say, call this guy, named Feinstein. So, meaning, go by reputation. So, that's who the Ron was. It's, it's just very interesting, as I said before, in this regard. Uh, he lived through, if he lived from 1315 to 1375, he lived to, through tumultuous times. Uh, because when he was, in 1348, let's put it this way, came the Black Plague, which hit the whole world and hit Spain. That's the Bubonic Plague. Uh, Maybe you've heard of it, the Black Death, they called it. And basically, it was a gigantic magefa that killed hundreds of thousands of people, depopulated whole regions, and whole towns. If you had a town of 30,000, half or two-thirds died. That's what really happened. In 1340, 1349, that time they had no idea of science, of course, and what the causes was. Therefore, it's, a, it's just an act of God. And if you're a Catholic in Aragon, it's the Jews' fault. And so this is when they accused the Jews of starting the plague, poisoning the wells, as the expression went in those days. And the Jews went crazy, tried to get the king on their side, Peter Fourth, and he was on their side, you know. And, and, you know, a certain amount of riots broke out, a certain amount of anti-Semitic violence broke out. Some towns were killed and all that until the king and the, and the royal army came to try to stop it. This is the period Iran was living through. In fact, he talks about it in his rushes, the Black Plague of 1348, 1349. And one of the things that happened was a lot of people got killed. Many of the, I mean, not killed, but, you know, were killed by the plague, I'm saying, died in the, in the Magifa, including a lot of the quality types. That's what they say. They say a lot of people who were the old school, or rich people who had respect for Torah, and that sort of thing, uh, died out from the illnesses and the people who survived and became the new richy riches, they were a lot of unscrupulous types and very unlearned. What do you call khams, you know, were very uh, uh types. And uh and they caused a hell of a time for the uh Judaism and the and the from Jews in the aftermath. That's who the Ron had to put up with. And so we know uh, let me let me tell you where we know most of what we know about the Ron for in the regular traditional way, not through the royal archives. The Ron had a number of students, as you would imagine, in his yeshiva. Uh, two, of, two of the most famous of them is the Chazdei and the Rivosh. I spoke about the Rivosh uh, a month ago, two months ago, whatever. He uh, was one of the great poskim of all time. He is the, like, the Talmud Muvak of the Ron. And it's actually very nice, because when you read the letters between them, you see they loved each other. And, you know, the Rebbe held the, uh, the, the student to be like a child, like his son. I mean it. I mean, really, you know, they're unusually close and nice relationships. And, uh, you know, they write with great affection to each other. And you see a, from, from, from the student, from the Rivosh, because the Rivosh wrote a lot and it survived in his chubas. Uh, a lot about Duran. And uh, one of the things he says over there is, a lot of very fascinating things, by the way. A lot of very fascinating things. I remember he said, but to, not to get off course, he says that Duran tried to uh, give Musser to uh, the Richie Riches in Barcelona, they wouldn't take it. And they uh, hit him back. And we uh, you know he uh, got himself very unpopular. There is a very famous incident where, in 1370, I think, or something like that, so Rome was in his 50s, where he was arrested with Jose Cressin and a couple of the other people, maybe the Rivas also. No, it was the cream of the rabbinate. was arrested by the government and thrown into the dungeon uh, for five or six or seven months until, and who knows what they did to me, beat him up or I don't know what they did, uh, until finally the whole thing was cleared up and they were released. Uh, this is a, a, a very famous, notorious incident. Historians have been trying to figure out what exactly happened. Nobody knows precisely. Uh, there was a famous Israeli-German historian, Fritz Baer, who wrote the classic book, History of Jews in the Jews in, the, in, the, in Christian Spain, and he had a whole conjecture which always made sense to me, which was that somebody blamed the Jews on uh, desecrating the host, which means stealing the wafer with the in it, as they believe, and uh, they arrested a guy, and they tortured him, and he, he brought other names, and they tortured them, and they brought other names, so they finally said, the rabbis told them they're doing it, so they brought them in. Uh, that's the way it goes. It's a, those kind of things did happen, because in Spain and other places, torture was totally a uh, uh, valid use of the uh what shall i say investigative process so the cops arrested you and then they wanted you to confess and name names and if you don't do so they'll burn you and slice you and dice you and all this other stuff put you in the rack and you'll say whatever you say what what is shocking to us is that some people were able to withstand the tortures but most people didn't so that was professor Barrett's famous conjecture that's why they arrested other historians say the dates don't work out and they have other reasons if it's the other reasons then it's even worse what i mean worse then these richy, rich Jews just didn't like the rabbi giving them too much muster. And he said, we'll show him a thing or two, and we'll tell the government, the king, that he did something like he spit on Jesus or something something like that. And that's enough to get you arrested and beaten up in jail and all the rest of it. In which case, it's Mama Hashem. You saying, Jew on Jew. It reminds you of the Tosis Yontav, you know what I'm saying? To Baal about to kill the rabbi. That's who the Ron had to put up with, just to show you what life was like in those days. And so, Sfarad was well, not such a great place when you get down to it. Meaning, they're like this Friday Jews, like you imagine today, oh, they're very religious, or very traditional, and all the rest of it. The lower elements were, you know, your average middle class, the lower middle class guy was. But the upper middle class and the wealthy class usually turned out to be pretty stinking. And uh, that's, how, that's what you had to put up with once upon a time. So that's who the Ron was, he had lived through all that junk. And I remember the Rivas says words to the effect that he tried to get Muslim, and it did not work. They, everything he everything he pressured them on, instead of them, see, if they would have been from, if there would have been any Torah, they would say like this, I do what I want. He can tell me not to watch the Super Bowl. I'll do what I want. But he's got the right to tell me not to watch the Super Bowl. You see? I, you know That's his job. I understand where he's coming from. He's not wrong from a Torah perspective. What I do is what I do, with a Torah perspective. But if he's a real new you know, Chalaria type of psychos. He's got a nerve telling me not to watch Super Bowl. I'll show him. I'll, t- I'll tell that rabbit keep his big fat, fat mouth shut. I'll get him arrested and beaten up and tortured and then he won't bother me anymore. He said, like, that's a different mentality. And that's the type of people that Ron had to put up with. Considering all of that, uh, it's quite remarkable that uh, he was able to get so much done. What do I mean, get so much done? The Ron is known by his literary output. Obviously, he entered... The, uh, the pantheon of great uh, Rishonim, the yeshiva world in other words, by his famous commentary on the riff. In the, like I say, it's saying yeshiva in the back of the Gemara, right? The way uh, Torah was studied in Aragon in the 12 and 1300s, this is just interesting. In the 12 and 1300s was, in regular yeshiva they did not learn Gemara, they learned the riff. Isn't that interesting? They learned the riff. Now, uh, the reason is, it, it it sounds like it's, uh you know, more, uh, the riff, is, of course, is a kid's retaguar, it's more focused, it's halacha oriented, and that kind of stuff, and so, the result is, I mean, by the way, Ashkenazic rabbis complained, there's a Tshubba Saraj, very famous, where he said, I tried to explain to these people about the Chirim Rabbeinu Gershon, they don't know what I'm talking about, because they don't learn gomar, they only learn riff, and, uh, you know, they've never seen anything like it, there are references, the Rambam, by the way, wrote to a student of his, and he said, if you're sending a we just learn riff. So this is very much, very, this notion is like a very popular notion, particularly in the Sephardic world of the Middle Ages. It's not what you think. <laughs> now, um, on the other hand, there was also a tradition of the high-end learners. This would be the tradition of the Ramban, in which you learn Gemara, Talmud Bavli, even Daikinat. So the Ran, Ben-Nissim, is obviously standing with one foot in both camps. He clearly wrote he clearly to me anyway. Uh, remember, he had a medical practice. To me, when he gave the shiurim, uh, which I assume were in the yeshiva, so uh, his idea was to bring the riff up so that the student in the yeshiva will understand the riff within the context of all the Torah, relevant Torah literature. So I'm not using the exact right parallel, but I will. I'll say this: the the Ron had intention to do to the riff but the Basios have an intention due to the tour. It's not exactly a commentary on the tour. It sort of is. The same way the Ron sort of is a commentary in the riff, because he does do that, as you know. Anybody's ever studied the Ron? But it's more than that. It's to say that in the Kitsar language of the riff, you bring the basics. I'm going to quote for you the Gemara and the Rashi and the other Rishonim, and, and the Ron is, is absolutely an heir, H-E-I-R, an heir of the... Aragonese Torah tradition, which means the Ramban, and the Rajbah, and the Ra, you know, and the Ravid. That whole uh, uh, gamut of uh, famous uh, names, how they read the Gemara, and in their, you know, Medaic-type way, and and, and the Ron shares that with the student, as everybody knows. Plus, he's also very interested in what the Rambam has to say. And the Ron this is, I mean, I've never, only when I sit down this podcast that I give any thought to it, uh, never thought about it, but Duran is one of the great commentaries on the Rambam. He always brings the Ram, Bamzal. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I didn't understand what that means. Who's the Ram, and then the Bamzal, you know. But it's the Ram, Bamzal. And, uh, uh, he's always quoting there because he wants to know what the al mice is. And so basically, although it's organized uh, uh, under the riff, as we know, but look how lengthy and voluminous the Duran is, and he goes very thoroughly, as we all know through there. Ad Kedekach, that in my opinion, for what it's worth, you know, if you just say Gemara, Rashi, and Tosu, you need one other Rishon. stick with the Ron because he like, summarized everything, and he's very good. He's, you know, he's, he's a very thorough, and uh, what can I say, comprehensive. In a way, this, uh, you know, he's not writing like one of the Bali Tosafists type, which is what the Ramban and the Rajwa, and they, they, they write along those lines. They wrote Chidushin, the, uh, and the, and the Ron also wrote Chidushin, but that's the Tosafistic style. As we all know, the Ron on the Rift, which is what most Yeshiva students have studied. Nobody even heard of Chedushim run until I don't know a hundred years ago. Or something. These things weren't weren't published out there. Uh, but in the history of learning, the commentary and the Rift got out there and was published with the first riffs hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Since so it's part of the learning of Kali Yisrael, so to speak, and uh, that's how he got in there. the uh, w- The point I wanted to make was: I remember the Base Yosef says in his intro that uh, in order to, that he likes. The two main commentaries, he says, on the Rambam to make the Rambam understandable, says the base of Yosef, is the Magen Mishnah and the Rahn. And by the way, the Magen Mishnah was a contemporary uh, of of the Rahn and and lived, I think, taught in the same Shiva. The same. It's very possible that he was tortured to death when they were all arrested, like I say, and thrown in the dungeon, because they say he died was it was killed. Al Hashem. It's it's uh, not clear, but it could very well be that he was one of the. Rabbis over there, and, they, and who knows what they did. They burned them, they tortured him. That's what happened to the Maga Misha. But listen to this. The Bezos says, the two commentaries on the Rambam and the Maga Misha and the Ron. Now, the Maga Misha, there is a commentary on the Rambam, as we all know. That makes total sense. But on the other hand, you don't usually think of the Rahn as a commentary on the Rambam, but Rabbi O'Kara did, <laughs> and he's right. Because as he goes through Suggy after Suggy all three shots, the way the the riff, I mean, Ron on the, the Rift goes, yeah, he's always bringing the Rambam, and he's explaining it at some length. And so, without getting too confusing, the idea is to acquaint the student of the 14th century, the advanced student, or the student who wants to advance, and the learning beyond the regular. You're learning the riff. I want you to know what the Gemara has to say on the subject, and Rashi, and people like that. And he'll paraphrase and explain Rashi's, you know. And I want you to know what the Icarus Shonim, at, people who are considered Icarus Shonim in the, in the 14th century, have to say, which means the Ramban and the you know and Ritba and those kind of people, and then I want you to know what the Rambam has to say on the subject, so that you will now know the halachah when you graduate from yeshiva, because what is there after the, the, the tour didn't exist at this time? <coughs> Excuse me, I mean the Shulchan Aruch obviously didn't exist at this time. So what does it mean to be a rabbi in paschim? You got to know the Gemara. You got to know uh, and you got to know the Gemara well. Can't know that just from learning the riff. You gotta know, to the, you know, the riff. You gotta know, the Rambam. You're ready to go, baby. Now you want, you know, dal uh, chalke uh, as we would say today. So for this reason, the, Ramb- the Ron, you know, uh, really, uh, as we know, entered the pantheon, as they say, is considered one of the main rishonim. Even though he's one of the last, he's one of the very, very late one, and it's <clears throat> kind of interesting it happened. Uh, but the Ron is always interested, <coughs> as we know, in our local Misa. I've always said people in see, yeshiva generally don't look at all these little cheater things that are in the back of the regular shahs. If you look at the end of any Ron in the regular Gemara's, you know, the villain shas, there we have something that's really cool, at least I always found it cool, and that's called Luch my Hashanim Tzim from this uh, Rabbi in Italy, Yosef Atalingi. I don't know who he was. And uh, he always takes every piece of the Ron and puts out the the one line of Lacham It looks very much like the uh, uh, what do you call it? you know in the back of the Gemara. here it's basically it's called Pisque Haran. And he goes through all shots. If you just pull it out, if you read a piece of Haran and you're not sure exactly what he's coming out with in the end, take a look what this guy has this hand subject. It's a, it's actually really cool. It's in the back of every Gemara. Luch And uh, anyway there there you have it. So here's somebody who lived in the tempestuous times. As I said before, the king his entire life basically was King Pedro the fourth. Uh, it was a character in half because he was always suppressing rebellions and he's always fighting people and trying to control everything around him. And it was half the time he's treating the Jews well, half the time he's treating the Jews terribly. He had to know how to swing with the punches, but uh, there were Jews at the court, and the Ron was one of the Jews at the court. So you don't usually really find a Rishon that I can think of who has this quality. I mean, the wasn't like that, the Bomb was not like that, even though the Ron in his old age was called to be in a debate in the disputation, he was in Girona. He stayed away from as much as possible Barcelona. I can see totally why he didn't want to deal with all those richy-rich types that are you know, the little Hitler's over there. Uh, where he lived, Girona was a more of a, what shall I say, a more tower type uh, more mystical-type uh, of community, smaller and all that. Uh, but if you lived in Barcelona the way the Ronde did, in the middle of all the tempestuous stuff, then uh, you had to be able to uh, handle yourself in this way. And uh, I do not know why the king, who called him to be his doctor, would then have him thrown into jail. Although it was the king's son who did it, but uh, such things happen. You had to get you had to get used to it. Now, the Iran also is famous, as everybody knows, not only for writing on the riff, but he also entered the uh, Valhalla, the the, uh, the uh, temple of the famous Vishnum, because of his classic "Come in the Dorm." Now, I don't understand exactly why you know, there's no Rashi in the dorm, as we all know where the Rashi It's in Madura Kama, so it's not so good, whatever. And so, uh, it was necessary, like, n- nobody plugged in that hole until the ron came along. Uh, like Is the Dharmas harder than any other Masechda? I've seen scholars try to say that. I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you know? It's not harder than the Masekta. uh And the Dharmas is, is no gay, it's not no gay, is anything else. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody goes around saying lie anymore, but people do make Netters of various types. And matter of fact, I remember distinctly the Chuvis um the rosh, and there's a whole bunch of cases where Jews swore by God falsely and then had to be punished and all this other. So you know the Dharm is uh, definitely no uh, but and the Losh and Adam, you know it, it's it's in there. You see in the in the Shah's from the time. But uh when anyway, as we all know, the Ron wrote this great uh, and very famous commentary in the Dharm, which is the main one used today. So as I say before, this doctor, if I can call it this physician, wasn't your average physician, you know? And he wasn't even the average physician who gives a dafiomi. He's the average physician who's like Rashiva Lakewood. That you don't fall too often. That you don't find too often. You know, he's like the Rashiva Mir. And he's a doctor. So this makes Deran, you, know, uh, you know, just a remarkable figure, even though we don't know, know enough about him. Now, in addition to his writing, which made him famous on the riff and his commentary in, in the Dharm. As I said before, Niran clearly also, in a different framework, wrote Kedushim, which means the the as best as I can figure out his classes. He must have given classes in Halacha or Halacha. Let me rephrase that. Halacha. Now today, a class in Halacha would be on Shulchan Aruch or something like that. Torah BeZiose, Shulchan Aruch with the Nosakalem. You know that would be your classic Halacha type class today. Well, in the 14th century, your classic Halacha type would be on the Rif. So that's the commentary he wrote, the huge commentary he wrote on the riff. That would be his halacha classes. Uh, but on the other hand, in addition to that, he also gave what we call lamdusha And the Lumdisha classes would be in the classic Tosafistic style, like the earlier predecessors in Aragon, and that's the chidusha Which now, you know, it's funny, I was uh, just, the minute before I picked this up, I got a phone call from a friend of mine, who's at the YU book sale, uh, I think he now lives in Connecticut, and he was saying, you know, I have two guys with me, and they want to know, is it Kedai to buy the Kedushi Iran from the most Rav Cook? And I said, first of all, yes. And second of all, I'm about to speak about that. You know, uh, it's not a, the Kedusha Iran are not identical with the Ron on the, uh, on the riff. It's got a different agenda, a different style. And uh, what shall I say? Uh, you know, they're one of the classic Kedusha, if you ever use them. And with the art scroll, I am mean, not the art scroll, the most Rav Cooks made a revolution, just like he made a revolution with the Raj on the riff. He also did with the Ron. Uh, they're not as fat, but they're, uh, you know, a very similar style. And Duran is always, always, I don't know, maybe it's me. I always find Duran very interesting. He says something different than the others. It's a, you know, and he explains it in a very logical and unusual way. That's, that's what I find about the You know, far that you don't see elsewhere. I, I, I just have a thing for Duran, what can I tell you? Uh, in addition to that, so these are all classic, you know, things of Torah literature. In addition to that, there's something called the Drusha Saran. Which, which we're pretty sure today, the scholars will tell you they think it's from the Ron. and here you have I've referenced it before, and the art scroll right now as we're talking, is now coming out with the English translation edition of the Drushes Ramban, and these are twelve or thirteen or fourteen uh, essays, I guess you'd say, in which the Ron speaks on different items. Uh, they're not speeches; they're you know treatments of subjects. They're called Drushes. I mean, I don't think they were speeches. Maybe gave them to a Chabura, you know them. It sounds like that. Maybe give him to a chabura, you know, in the yeshiva or something like that, uh, and they deal with subjects. The best one that sticks in my mind uh, is the one about shoftim and shoftim. I've mentioned it here before, in which this, he has this very interesting ideas about politics, and uh, this sets him out. Scholars have written about the ron as a political thinker in the 14th century. I kid you not. And somebody once wrote of his democratic liberalism, and all that. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but I, I do recall. His famous and very interesting and original way of thinking about the institution of Melach, in which case he says the Torah laws are meant like for a shoftim, shoftim, mishpat for a perfect society, because you can't really run the, a, a normal society according to the Torah law. Nobody knows why God set up this way. I'll tell you what I mean. You can't uh, you can't convict somebody without two Adam and a hasra, and uh, the cross examination is so difficult you can never get a conviction. If you can't get a conviction. Then it's a uh, you know the crime wave like we have in America, at least in Baltimore where I live. It's a crime wave. It's, uh, you know why would God do that? Not only that, but uh, you know it's possible to uh, get away with murder if I know how to do groma. I can blow you up. You know as long as there's a time gap. So why would that be? And you know Daron at least deals with these kind of issues and he, he speculates that the Torah law is meant for a perfect society, but when things break down, then you have mishpat haMelach. The Melach takes over temporarily, and he can suspend all those habeas corpus-type laws in the Torah, Torah law, this high bar for uh, due process, and he'll just kill you, you know, or do whatever it takes to restore order in society, which is a very interesting medieval way of looking at things, um, because that's what you had in the Middle Ages. You have multiple jurisdictions and laws operating at the same time. So we don't usually think of Jewish law that way, but he did. So in the Middle Ages, you'd have the king's law, you'd have the uh, provincial law, the nobles' law, the municipal law, and he's speculating, I repeat, speculation, something along those lines with the Jewish law, which is the most unusual. I forget offhand what the round says about Dina Malkusa Dina, but I'll bet it's something unusual because he lived in a time when there really was Dina Malchusus. So take a look at that. You'll, you'll see something you're cute. Uh, time is up. Uh, let, me, let me see one last piece uh, before we leave this very, very interesting person. And that is, there's a whole controversy I don't understand entirely myself. They they say the Ron wrote a safer Torah, which is still around today. Uh, he wrote a safer Torah. And uh, this Torah somehow or really survived. It was on, you know, on parchment and so forth, on Gevil, actually. And uh, it's still there today. I think if you go online, you probably will see it somewhere. And it's a whole long story with it. It was in Brazil by a and then they, they gave it to Deveria, and then it was, I, I think now it's in the National Library in Israel, something like that, right? Probably, you know, in the. Uh, he. Hebrew, you're one of those places. And the Torah has some unusual letters because, you know, not everything goes exactly like the Be- Yosef or Rizal. Uh, I remember his Kuf was funny. You know, I think there was a, it was closed, if I remember correctly. The Kuf was closed. Uh, repeatedly, you know. And the tsadi was also funny or something like this. And I'm not into Satam so much, say for Torah, Tefillin, Mizuz, all those halachas, without looking them up. But uh, I know it's been very controversial. The Baba Tsharebi was interested in and the Chazanish was interested in the 20th century. A whole hullabaloo rose. What do you do with the Rons, for Torah, which don't conform to what you see in the Shulchan Aruch? Which is no problem to me, but I'm saying a, a lot of ink has been spilled in this, and a lot of Haredi stuff are going back and forth, the, You know, where they, where they say can't be, must be something else. And uh, some say it's a forgery, some say it's not a forgery. I don't remember all the uh, details on this. Uh, but look at this. Here's a Rishon who lived in the 1300s, and we have his Sefer Torah that he wrote for, for himself. So in addition to being a doctor, in addition to being somebody who published a gigantic work of halacha called the Ran on the Rif, in addition to the Kedushim, which also is a lot of sweat work, in addition to the Drashas, in addition to Shalas and Shuvahs, he had time to write a Sefer Torah. And that's the Sefer Torah that survived because it has a famous inscription from his son in which he basically says, this is the only survivor of Auschwitz. You know what I mean? He said, we had a whole community, Barcelona, everybody got killed, or forced to convert, and it's all destroyed. And I, and the only reason I survived is because my good friend, like a brother, Chaz de who was a, my father's talmud, had influence with the king was able to save me from the uh, the mobs or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it, it's like a tragic end. But look at this. Here's somebody who left the safer Torah. Um, on his own. If you're interested in this, if you're the type that's interested in the questions of, uh, you know, letters of the Sefer Torah and Hilchah and all the rest of it, uh, now that i called your attention to it, you'll go take a look, do a little investigation, you'll see the whole business about Duran's Sefer Torah. Uh, in general, I would just conclude by saying as a physician, he had to learn philosophy because medicine at that time was different than today, even though it sounds crazy to us. Medicine first, he had to get like a PhD in philosophy, and then medicine was considered a branch of philosophy. Therefore, he had to be familiar with secular studies to that degree in order to get an MD. But Duran is clearly, uh, shall I say, not a Mordechai type. You know, he's more much from the Ramban school, in which, you know, uh, you don't limit the Torah by rational uh, argumentation, and he's very sus- uh, suspicious of quote unquote rationalism. Not rationality, as I always say, but rationalism, in which case everything can be reduced to, to, uh, you know, the rational, what what makes sense right now. Because right now it's only 1370. It's only the year 1374. How do you know it's going to make sense in in 1474? You know, that kind of approach. And although uh, he writes clearly, I would say, eh, not super clearly, but pretty clearly. And the riff is very clear. But the, the discussions around kind of, you know, in my opinion, you guys go on and on and on. But uh, I say he's pretty clear in what he what he's saying. Uh, he is not doing so out of a sense of uh, philosophical training, um, but he's rather a, a person who has philosophical training in order to, to slug up philosophy, which is just kind of very interesting. So it's not exactly what called Torah Mada. It's Torah to use against Mada or <laughs> so, something along those lines. And yet, and yet, he uh, was a practicing doctor. Uh, but he was willing to do that rather than be under the nose of the Richie Rich Ball about him. And that shows you what life was like in those days. I've gone more than I usually go. And so with this, I'll conclude. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot dot com.